chapter 1, verses 21 through 34. So let's read. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of me. Then the unclean spirit, convulsing the crying out a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all of the surrounding region of Galilee. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her, and the fever left her, and she began to serve him. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, welcome. Really glad that you're here. Um, I guess if it's Halloween, we should probably deal with some like demon possession and Jesus exercising demons. Uh, this seems like a decent idea. So, uh, but really, if you're uh, if you're new, great to see you um, and look forward to meeting you. I'm Russell. I'm the pastor here at Reunion, and we are a community following Jesus, seeking the good of our city. And if you're new, what I hope today is is sort of like a, a peek under the hood of who we are as a community, what we're trying to do. Um, being such a young church, there's so much to figure out. And so in our staff meetings, what I've been saying is, is 1% better every week. We're figuring so many things out. And so um, I'm, I'm just really proud of our team and, and really glad that you're here today. Um, and then on Sundays, starting today, um, we're going to be having pre-service coffee and um, prayer at 10.30 a.m. Uh, I know at the end of our service, it feels like sort of a rush to get out of here. We're like cleaning up and, and it's like, all right, got to go. And so we want to create some space um, to meet some new friends, to pray together. Um, and if you're new to all that, no problem. Um, come and, and we'll guide you in that process. And of course, we have delicious coffee. Um, it actually comes um, from a place in Brooklyn called Milk and Pole. And so um, it's really cool. I think it's in Bushwick, actually. And so uh, 10.30 Sundays, pre-service coffee and prayer. All are welcome. Let's pray as we get into this text. And so, God, um, Jesus, be the center of this church. I love the words that we sing and the uh, process of following you that we are invited into. And so I just pray right now. Uh, that uh, you would um, use ideas, uh, use the thoughts, use me, God, to, um, to make this make sense, this crazy passage where it's very chaotic. There's so many things uh, going on, but uh, by your spirit, would you meet us here, God? We come from all over right now um, with different experiences, um, different backgrounds, different upbringings, and I pray right now that you would be telling a common story in, in this church, in this community, um, through your son, Jesus, and so... 
Um, God, we love you, and we, um, we say be in this place. And so the, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So I'm slowly coming to the conclusion that I'm not cool anymore. Um, and maybe I never was, but um, I've been getting some Gen Z friends, and I'm finding out that I'm fully out of the loop, all right? This is just, this is just facts. Um, I'm not on the in-circle, but I've, the in-circle is overrated, okay? And so I know this because I recently learned what a stan is, all right? Um, and I learned what the word chuggy means. Um, I think somebody actually called me chuggy, but okay, so a stan, if you don't know this, is an obsessive uh, fan. And the name for this comes from a song from, from Eminem in 2001, and I liked that song in 2001, so I was originally cool. And Chuggy is, uh, this is like straight copy-pasted, generally used by Gen Z to describe millennials who are slightly off-trend. Chuggy. I don't know like the etymology of that, but whatever. So the New York Times runs, runs this op-ed this week on, on Thursday, and it's titled this, The 37-year-olds are afraid of the 23-year-olds who work for them. And then here's the subtitle. 20-somethings rolling their eyes at the habits of their elder, elders is a long-standing trend. Many employers said there's a new boldness in the way Gen Z dictates taste. And so the article goes on to, to talk about how young people um, in these massive corporations are actually shaping the culture. Uh, they're bringing in with them more emotion, more care for people, a more uh, relaxed vibe into the work environment. And in one sense, when I got done reading the article, I thought there's a, a shifting tide around this word authority. And we all have a relationship with authority, but I was thinking back through the generations and did some research. And the boomers were skeptical of authority, but they were traditionalists. And so time equaled authority. The longer you were in, the more authority you had. Gen X just became skeptical of authority. A lot of times Gen X is called the latchkey kids. And so they didn't grow up with authority around them. And so what do they do? They push back authority. Millennials, uh, some of us in the room here, we test authority, but then we often seek out authority figures for guidance. I call millennial, we do this, right? I go away, come in, right? This is the simultaneous, uh, I'm skeptical, but I need you, all right? And Gen Z, it'll be interesting to see how this takes place because, of course, like the article was talking about, there's a skepticism, but then I also feel like there's this leaning of, like, just tell me what to do. I'll, I'll do what you want me to do, but then at the, on the back end of that, Gen Z also sounds like they want to keep uh, authority accountable. Um, and so we live in a time of questioning, right? Questioning authority, questioning the government and bureaucracy. Um, controversies um, that we want to speak into about power and influence. Uh, there's constant disputes over the overreach of authority. And as I was thinking about it, I thought, well, this is just this is just a mess. But actually, I thought this is actually really brilliant. There are major benefits to us questioning authority, right? A layer of accountability, safety or a sense of safety, uh, the idea of character and personal integrity being raised up. And these are these are um, quite good values. But for us today, one of the things that might be helpful in, um, in getting into this text is to evaluate our relationship with authority, um, to think about your upbringing, um, the ways that you think about your relationship with your parents, the way that you uh, view teachers in school, whatever it may be. Because if we have a fundamental distrust of authority, that can be detrimental to our relationships, though, like I said, it's, it's a time of questioning and that can be a good thing. And so what happens in today's passage is Jesus speaks with authority, 
But he doesn't just speak with authority. He, he shows that he has authority over the physical and the spiritual. And so where we've been in the book of Mark is we've been hitting key themes, right? Baptism, uh, the Trinity, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Um, we've talked about this idea of kingdom. We talked about this idea of the gospel, of following Jesus or a discipleship. And here, Jesus yet again gives us another reason to not be neutral about who he is. And this is sort of the natural drift um, with, with the person of Jesus that we have is to say, yeah, I'm, I, I like Jesus. I like some of the things he says. But the problem is that that's not what Jesus claimed to do and to be. And we're going to once again find that in this scripture. So here's where we start in verse 21. And they went into Capernaum. He's with these, his disciples here. And uh, Capernaum ends up being Jesus' um, sort of adopted home. It's on the north part of the Sea of Galilee. And he actually finds um, a fair level of success. Um, and you'll see that throughout this passage. So they, go, they went into Capernaum. And immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching. For he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribe. And so one of the things that we preview here is, is an ongoing tension that Jesus is going to have with the religious leaders of his time, right, right up until his death, in fact. Um, Jesus walks in, and what does he do? He breaks the Jewish law. He puts himself in stark contrast with the religious leaders of that day. And it says, for he taught as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And it makes you think, like, well, that's a knock at the scribes, right? Like, what were they teaching? They have no authority? Well, how did they teach? They would, they would stand up and they'd say, well, this is what Moses said. This is what the law says. And their authority was based on their learning. But Jesus began to speak differently. And so for the scribes, they were sort of the source of established religion in this time. They were credentialed. They knew the scriptures in and out. They would have, uh, they would have and hold the responsibility to, to teach and to keep the Jewish law. And here comes this rabbi who didn't come from the right background, who didn't go to the right school, who's not credentialed in the right way, who's coming from the margins in Galilee. Who is this obscure preacher, right? And what is happening is he's moving from the margins to the very center of Jewish order. And what's crazy here, it's easy to miss in the passage, it says immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue. What does this mean? Why an emphasis on the synagogue and the Sabbath? The synagogue is sacred space, and the Sabbath is sacred time. Sacred space, sacred time. Jesus walks to the very center of all that is sacred and begins to stand up and teach as if he knows what he's talking about. And so the passage is very chaotic. Jesus moves into sacred space, sacred time, and then um, he's breaking the barriers with the religious leaders of that, but then also what happens? You've got to imagine this for a second, right? Jesus in the synagogue teaching, and a man with an unclean spirit, a demon-possessed man, interrupts Jesus' teaching, and he starts talking in the plural. This is just crazy. When, when, a, when one person starts talking in the plural, you should worry, right? What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus looks over at him. It's like this pure intensity. And the, the word in the Greek is, is like very emotional. And he literally just says, shut up. Shut up and come out of him. And what happens? The spirit leaves him. Just pure power Jesus holds over the spiritual forces of darkness. We're going to come back to that a little bit in a, in, a, in a minute here. And then they're all amazed, right? There's an amazement and a question among themselves. What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. And at once his 
fame spreads everywhere throughout all the surrounding regions of Galilee. And so today what I want to do is I want to hinge on these three words. Authority, power, and healing. Authority, power, and healing. And again, I want you to keep, I want you to bring with you that, that idea of authority that you have. Because it's really going to help you figure out what this means for you today. So the, the idea of authority. Here's a definition. The right to do something or to act in a particular manner, like giving an order, enforcing obedience, or influencing another. So authority is the right to control, command, or determine. And I'll just go first and say, I don't like it when people tell me what to do. Like, is there anybody with me that would just be honest and say, I don't like it when people tell me what to do? No, I need your hands because, okay, very good, thank you. I need to know that I'm not alone if I'm gonna share this, okay? I don't think that this is an admirable trait about Russell. That I'm, not, I'm not bragging when I say this, but I do think it's a sort of pride of sorts that, that would say, I know better for, for me, right? And I don't know if it was formed in me at a young age from like a more docile mother and a more patriarchal father, but I don't like when people tell me what to do. I definitely don't like when someone commands me to do something. And I, um, when I think about um, like a relationship with like a corporation, my least favorite thing to hear is, it is our policy. Right? Rules without reason make my blood boil. So I recently rent a, a zip car. I returned the car 16 minutes late. So much traffic getting back into the city. $50 service charge. And I'm like, no, I'm not paying this. And so I'm like, I'm annoying. I'll just call people and grind their gears and be kind of rude. Um, I'm working on it, all right? It's a process. Um, so I fight with them for like an hour and a half and they hide behind email and like they're tier like three, four people. I worked my way up the ladder here and I eventually got this answer. This is our policy. And of course I said, your policy sucks and I hate you. And so I usually get my money back. I didn't this time. But I, I know this isn't everyone. So I, I know that some of us are like, I'm willing to go, I'm willing to grind. But where are my real followers in the room? All right, because you're, you're thinking like even a story like that is like, oh, like don't even tell me what happened. It's so awkward, right? Here's what, here's what I mean to say is we have a relationship with authority and on an insanely basic level, you and I submit to authority. So say you go to the grocery store and let's say you want a kombucha or something. Kombucha is gross, but whatever. You, you might walk in and you might say, you might go to someone that works there and you, you would say, well, where's the kombucha? And what are you doing? You're acknowledging that they have authority or a, a level of power in the grocery store that you do not. They possess a knowledge that you do not. And when you walk into the grocery store, on a, on a very basic level, you're submitting to their authority, right? You can't just go behind the register and take what you want. You're actually um, going into a process where you're placing yourselves under this authority. And so that's like a very basic level of understanding. Every day-to-day -day relationship and interaction we have has a level of authority. Let's take it a little bit further, though. There's a sociologist uh, named Max Weber, a German sociologist, and he came up with a framework, actually, for understanding um, types of authority. And so he groups authority into these three parts here. Traditional authority, um, rational legal authority, and then charismatic authority. And so traditional authority is what it sounds like. It's long-standing traditions that, uh, where authority has been passed down through the practices of society. Um, and 
maybe a, a, a catchphrase for this was, it's always been that way. That's just the way things go. Um, I think of maybe the Catholic Church is a good example of, um, of traditional authority and institution. Um, Queen Elizabeth occupies a position that she inherited based on the rules of succession of the monarchy. And so people adhere to traditional authority because that's the way it's always been. And then you move to, uh, we'll skip to the last one here, charismatic authority. This type of authority um, is where people are drawn into someone's um, uh, an individual or a leader's personal qualities. This could be um, due to their ability to speak. It could be because they, be because they have uh, a high moral character. I think of uh, like a Martin Luther King Jr. He had both, right? He, he stood up, he was a great orator, but he also had a moral foundation and people wanted him, or people were drawn to him and wanted to follow him. Uh, and then the last one, this rational legal authority. Um, maybe we think of just the, the government at a basic level, right? The bureaucratic authority where the, the government has legitimized uh, the laws and the legal process. Um, and through a series of you know, elections and appointments, uh, we have a legal authority. Now, why do I tell you this? This is actually a, a helpful framework um, for us to think about the ways in which um, we view authority because a lot of times we actually have tensions with a maybe more legal process. We might look at that and say, I don't really like the way that rational legal process goes, but I am really drawn to this individual as, as a giver of authority. And so it helps us delineate in our minds our relationship with authority. And so now you can even take, take it a step further. Who do I look to in authority in my life and why? What, 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 what do they possess that uh, I value, that I look to them and say, it's okay for them to speak into my life? So, I think authority is actually the word of the hour for the, for the church in our time. Um, and I want to kind of switch gears here in thinking about the means of authority that the church has. Because in a lot of ways, the authority of the church is crumbling. And um, I'm not quite sure if this is a bad thing. If you look through these lenses, the traditional, the old way of doing things is being questioned. Scandals are being exposed in churches, right? We have had for too long uh, a charismatic draw to one individual figure and misogyny and narcissism um, have, have taken hold in the life of leaders. Um, what about a rational or legal, a bureaucratic authority? There's been abuse and scandal in churches, and what happens? The process is covered up, the case is closed, and we move on. And so for a lot of people, the modern church experience is a flawed institution. It's sinful, and it's full of people. Um, and other words that are associated with churches are corruption, injustice, abuse, oppression, division, shallow teaching, greed, unaccountability. And, I, and hear me correctly, I love the church. I believe in the church. I, you know, we're six, who plants a church in the middle of this time, you know? I, I believe in what we're doing. And I'm not saying I'm above these things. What I'm actually saying is I want to come underneath the accountability of these things. And we'll actually, we'll end there today. I want to talk about accountability and structure in our church. Um, and you might say, well, that's kind of an intense thing to talk about. Um, and we'll talk about more at our newcomers gathering. If you have any questions, I think this is really important. But... I think that the abuse of authority and unchecked power are running rampant in the church and we need to pay attention. We need to wake up and we need to ask questions. And if you're here today and you've been a part of a church where you face this level of hardship, where someone hurts you, where you have unresolved conflict, um, don't, don't neglect that. 
don't just push it to the side. There is a lot of pain that's actually taking place inside the church, and that's not okay. And, and what, what I want to show you today is that's actually not the way of Jesus in any way, shape, or form. And the one thing that's really important about this passage is um, when Jesus stands up and says, I have authority, that's essentially what he's saying, uh, his authority possesses a moral dimension. And the, the manner in which organizations and institutions have pushed away the moral dimension of, of what they do is, is uh, really abhorrent. And so Jesus is actually showing us a way to have um, character in the midst of um, teaching and authority and, and possessing this. And uh, Max Weber actually, uh, that sociologist actually said that Jesus is the prime example of charismatic authority. And what's funny is I kind of was running those through Jesus' teaching in his life, and I was like, no, he actually supersedes all of these things as he steps onto the scene. He says the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. He's actually saying I'm actually inaugurating something that's way bigger in, in terms of authority. And the reason Jesus can do this, everything that Jesus said and everything that Jesus did was grounded in the integrity of his life. And so in one sense, you can look at Jesus and say, Jesus is one with authority because everything he said and everything he did went in tandem with each other. And so he was like, I'm going to do this. He does it. He follows through with what he says. He never lies. And so he stands up and says this in Matthew chapter 28. This is the end of uh, Matthew's gospel. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is huge. Jesus says, all authority. All authority has been given to me. And I, this is, it would be a big miss today if we didn't grasp what Jesus is saying here. Even if you wrestle with Jesus, his teachings, the way that it applies to your life, I don't want to be confused about what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, and I wrestle with this too, He's saying in the beginning of Mark and he's saying at the end of Matthew, I am who I say I am. I am who I say I am. I am God in the flesh and I've come to save humanity. You think you're the boss of your life and you're wrong. I'm the boss. But right, the, like all authority, Jesus says I'm Lord. That means I'm the boss, I'm the king, right? But he's also other things. And so we keep this in tandem with one another. And so that's a lot of like a lot of information. I know we're like processing on the go here. The, 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 the sense of authority that, we, um, that speaks over us, we have a relationship with. But what happens with said authority? Eventually, that authority has a level of power. And this is the, the next part that I want to speak to. Um, Mark is saying Jesus spoke with authority. And the Greek word is really fascinating. It's sometimes translated as authority, but sometimes it's translated as power. And it's this Greek word. It's um, exousia. Exousia. It's not really an easy word um, to say. But Jesus is presented as one with power over the spiritual and the physical. And this word just really caught me this week um, because I, I think I have a very, we, I should say, have a pretty narrow idea about authority and power. And so here, let me read this again and then we'll kind of break down this word exousia. In verse 27 it says, And they were all amazed and they questioned themselves saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. And at once his fame spreads everywhere throughout the region. A new teaching with exousia is the word, exousia. And so here's what Ronald Rollheiser, he's a um, Catholic theologian. He says, exousia might be described as a combination of vulnerability 
innocence and helplessness that a baby brings into a room. Its very helplessness, innocence, and vulnerability have a unique authority and power to touch your conscience. It's for good reason that people watch their language around the baby. Its very presence is cleansing. Now, I don't know if this really struck me because, like, my son is going to be born in a month, and I'm, like, anticipating and nervous and excited, and this really caught my mind about this moment when a child is born. There, I know this is going to sound so weird. Um, the smell, even, of, of like, a, a new baby is so nostalgic, and it just takes you to this place where you're just, like, nothing is wrong in the world, everything is right, and there's just this sense of newness and freshness, and you do, like, I know he is he joking here about it, it touches your conscience. They, we watch our language around babies. Like, we, we step into the room when there's a baby, and we're gentle, and we don't want to trip over anything or touch anything, and just everything about our being just changes in that moment and this word exousia it's it's expressing a power right don't forget the word is translated authority or power but this theologian is saying it actually represents this sort of vulnerable power this sort of power that's helpless so let me let me show you a couple pictures here to try and help expand this idea all right i wish someone would just tell me what these all have in common without no i'm just kidding Fidel Castro, top left, right? Um, a powerful dictator who ruled a country, right? He commanded an army and wielded power, right? Like he could go to war, right? Uh, top right, the greatest basketball player of all time. Uh, his power resides in his strength and his agility, right? Raw power and muscle. Um, bottom left, Adele. Just Adele has the ability to draw you in. Like, you know, you could go to the concert and just like, I don't know, I've, I've never been to an Adele concert, but there's this sort of uh, power to electrify an audience, but you can also just stay at home and just weep listening to her music too, right? There is authority, there's muscle, and there's charisma, and that is a type of power. But what if I told you the most powerful thing on the screen is in the bottom right? The baby, right? Seemingly without power or strength, unable to ask for what it needs, but maybe the most powerful. Yes, the athlete could crush it, the dictator could kill it, Adele could outsing that baby any day of the week. That baby has nothing on Adele in terms of her voice, all right, I promise. But the baby can touch the heart in a way that the others cannot. Innocence. Wordless presence, no physical strength, but this baby can transform a person and a heart in a way that guns, muscles, or charisma cannot. And this is the genius of Jesus right here. Jesus, born as a baby. We're going we're gonna to move into this Advent season. We're going to celebrate Christmas and what's going to happen. We're going to remember that this is how Jesus came to be. Powerless. How did Jesus die? Helpless, hanging on a cross. People mocking his very powerlessness. And what is he the most? He's the most powerful, even though he's on the cross. And I get that this is a difficult framework, actually, to look into, because we look at authority and power, we think leadership, dynamic, strength, charisma, and yet there's a sort of moral conscience that, that we need in, in, in our realm of power. And Jesus sort of subverts our view of power in that way. He meets us in a sort of vulnerability, in a place of mystery where our consciences are formed and we find in the midst of that that he's he's worthy and he's good and so it's a, i know it's a bit a bit mystery a, a bit of a mystery in in that sense 
But there's something formational that Jesus does in his power. So how does he exert his power? And he does it in two ways here. He has power over, over the spiritual and the physical. And so um, we find that he uh, comes to this unclean spirit. He cries out. The spirit says, what do you have to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Jesus says, be silent, come out of him. And he comes convulsing on the ground. Notice Jesus has no like enchantments, no spells, no nothing to mix or anything like that. He speaks a word of power and the exorcism transpires. And so this is a little bit of a sidebar here. I, you know, it's Halloween. And so I don't know if you have questions about um, unclean spirits in um, exorcisms. I uh, one time watched The Conjuring and I asked my friends to sleep over at my house. And so I'm like, I, I, the passage is fascinating in that realm. But one of the temptations in a passage like this is actually to read it and to, um, to demythologize it into our own modern medical thinking. And so we make the exorcism, of, you know, an epilept, uh, epilept, epilept, epileptic event. There we go. Um, or like a mental disorder. And what we actually attempt to do in a passage like this when we read it is to take the supernatural out and insert the purely natural but that's not um, that one. I don't think that that's the way the passage is meant to be read, but I don't think that's what the author is communicating either. Here's what um, Paul says in Ephesians chapter six. He says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And so the Bible actually says that our world has a spiritual realm to it. There are things in this world that we cannot explain. And I know that some of us are like, you know, our, our alarms are raised about what this is. But even more importantly, we can, we can actually create sort of an unhealthy obsession with uh, the supernatural, right? There are things that we can't explain in this world. But the point of the passage is, is that God actually supersedes these things, that God is at work in the midst of the spiritual forces of darkness. And we can have, you know, questions about that. But one of the misnomers that we have is that um, God and the devil are equal. And C.S. Lewis um, really does a great job clearing this up um, in, this, in this quote. He says, the commonest question is whether I believe in the devil. Now, if by the devil you mean a power opposite to God and like God, self-existent from all eternity, the answer is certainly no. There is no uncreated being except God. God has no opposite. The proper question is whether I believe in devils. That is to say, I believe in angels, and I believe that some of them, by the abuse of their free will, have become enemies of God, and as a corollary to us, these we may call devils. They do not differ in nature from good angels, but their nature is depraved. Devil is the opposite of angel, only as bad man is the opposite of good man. Satan, the leader or dictator of devils, is the opposite, not of God, but of Michael, the archangel. And so there's a, a way of reframing, uh, a way for us to help think about um, you know, I, the picture that we normally get is like God on the shoulder, the Satan on the other shoulder. And that's actually not a, a biblical um, picture of it because God has no opposite. And in the midst of that, there is nothing to fear. Those who are in Christ cannot be like filled with a demon in any way. Like I could watch The Conjuring. I'm not. Um, but I, th I think I would be safe to do that. Again, I'm not going to do that. It's freaked me out. But what's the point? How does Jesus use his power? How does Jesus use his power? And the answer is, he uses it against evil and for our good. Against evil and for our good. Jesus, though, doesn't hold power just over the spiritual. He holds power over the physical. And I love that these two things are combined. I thought, I thought in terms of teaching that they were separate. But as I started reading the passage, I realized 
that these two things actually need to be linked. Um, and it's really important that they are because Jesus comes into the home of Simon and Andrew and um, Simon's uh, mother-in-law lay ill with a fever. And what does Jesus do? Jesus comes in and heals. What is he saying? I have authority over the spiritual and the physical. And I, I know that you're like, okay, where, how are we going to land this plane? Where are we going? You want this. You want this. This is what I want to tell you today. Like you, you desire an authority, someone who is telling you what to do, a, a Lord, but has the ability to do something about it, right? Like we need this. Like we want an end to war and injustice and COVID and um, violence and pain and flu and cancer and all these things. And Jesus is saying, I actually have the ability to do all of that. Like, and it's, um, like we talked about two weeks ago, it's like poking through. It's not, it's not exactly here yet, but it's poking through in our midst. And so let me just wrap up with this last one. How does Jesus, what does he do with his power? What does he do with his authority and his power? And the first thing is, is that Jesus gives it away. This is mind-blowing to think about that Matthew 28 passage. What is he saying? All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. What is he saying? He's saying, I have the power, I have the authority, but now you do too. And so the claim in, in, in Mark is Jesus is king, right? He's like, I, I have the power and the authority, and now I'm going to give that away. Let me show you a, a shape here, a triangle. So the king has authority and he exerts power. And the order matters. The king has authority and uh, he exerts power. But an interesting way to look at, at this is if, if you're someone who has authority but no power, uh, you're like a mall cop, right? <laughs> you, you have the authority, but you have, you're on a segue, right? You have no power, right? And so um, you can't do much. But if all you have is power, but you have no authority, you're probably a criminal, right? Like you're not allowed to do what you're saying you're doing, but you're exerting power. And Jesus is saying, I'm the king, I have authority, and I'm going to exert power, and I want you to do the exact same thing. But what does that mean? It means that the authority that we hold as followers of Jesus is actually derivative it's derivative from Jesus. It's his power. Every drop of power that you and I hold is, is, um, is shared, and it's given to us by God to do what? And this is the last part that we move into, right? It's authority. It's power. Jesus has these things, and he uses them to heal. He uses them to heal. Jesus is one with authority. His fame is spreading. He's getting really famous, right? Early on in Mark's gospel, people are already hearing about who he is. And then in verse 33, this is just absolutely insane. The whole city was gathered together at the door, and he healed many who were sick with various diseases, and he cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. For one reason or another throughout this gospel, you're just going to keep seeing people coming to Jesus. A lot of times they want to use him for their own good. But people are sick and need someone to help them. There's demon possession. There's a lot of things going on. But Jesus doesn't take the authority and the power and leverage them for himself. But he gives his authority away. He says, let's be a community that heals other people. And that's what struck me this week. Is you have this full progression throughout the passage. But people are just huddled up around Jesus like, fix me. 
I'm the one that needs healing. I need wholeness. I need a breakthrough in my life. And so last image here. Um, I've been reading this book. Um, it's called, it's really small, I'm sorry. It's called, uh, the, the, uh, the book is called A Church Called Tov. And Tov is the Hebrew word for good. And it's this challenge, I'm trying to read this book really, really slow because I think it has a lot of really good stuff. And I'll read it through here. Um, these are the chapters of the book, actually. But how do we nurture um, a community of goodness is essentially the idea here. And the first one is that we nurture empathy and we resist a narcissist culture. Next one is that we nurture grace and we resist a fear culture. The next one is that we put people first and um, we uh, resist institutional creep. We tell the truth and resist false narratives. We nurture justice and uh, resist the loyalty culture. We nurture service and resist the celebrity culture. And we nurture Christ's likeness and we resist the leader culture. And if I were to, if I were to look at that, I would say, I want to be a part of that community. Right? I want to be a part of that community. There's, there's so many good things that are taking place. But I think if we desire to be a community like this, then we need to pray to be a community like this. And so what I wanted to do today is um, to really pray that God would speak to us in, in the midst of that. That not only that um, we would be people that allow, allow healing to take place um, outside of us, but that we would be healing internally, right? That we would pray in the way um, that invites empathy and grace and putting people first and justice and service. And so um, if you just want to get, you know, if you have things on your lap or um, whatever, if you want to put those down for a minute, I just, I would love to just create a little bit of silence for us so that we could pray. Because there's, generally in, in, in sermons, it's like, it can be very individualistic. I want to do the individualistic and then let's come back and do the communal. And so let's, um, let's clear our laps. And if you want to put yourself in a posture of sort of receptivity, you can put your hands out. And I'll just be quiet for a minute. But that we would pray towards this end, that we would be a community that's like this. That would be people like this. And this is a moment too, um, if you... If, like, if you like, want healing, if you need healing, and you believe that God can do something about it, it'd be a moment to take a big deep breath in and to just say that. You don't have to say it out loud, but you can say, God, I believe that you can do something about the evil in the world, physical pain that I have in my life. I don't know what it is, but let's place ourselves in a posture of receptivity.